Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm John Rogers. We're kicking off 2022 with a double interview for your good selves. We're keeping it in-house. Later on, we'll be hearing from IC Properties writer Alex Newman. He's had a busy week with the government asking house builders for a £4 billion plan to resolve the unsafe cladding crisis and a peer-to-peer property lender launching in the UK. So Alex will be bringing us up to speed. But first, everyone's favourite stock picking expert, Simon Thompson, is on the pod to discuss a feature he's written this week, Secrets of Successful Investing. Happy New Year, Simon. How are you? Happy New Year to you too, and all all the readers. No, I'm very fresh. Um, I've come back from annual leave, having taken extended annual leave, and um, yeah, raring to go for the new year. Delighted to have you back. Um, I'm sure your inbox was full of... uh of people wanting you to get back as soon as possible um it's, it's taken about two days to actually clear all the <laughs> telephone calls and um reply to lot, lots of emails too so um yeah i i think uh, some of my commentary was missed um <laughs> i think so well um as i said you've written the cover feature for this week um secrets uh of successful investing and um I think off the bat, if anyone was worried about the diligence you put into stock picking, they'll have their mind put at ease. Um, even by the first paragraph where you write that you carry out no less than 16 different risk assessments on companies uh, from determining how profits are made um, to geopolitical risk factors even. Um, could you give us a whistle-stop tour of your process uh, and tell us what are the most significant factors you, um, you see in determining quality small companies? Um, I mean, the most important thing is that before you can actually invest in anything, you've got to understand the risk you're actually taking on. And um, if you don't know how the profits of a company are made and the potential for its growth, then um, you, you really are, are lost from from the start. So I mean, that that that's the starting point. Um, I look at other things, which you know, the annual reporting accounts and trading statements and interim accounts reveal these, such as the robustness of cash generation, balance sheets, balance sheet strength. Um, I look at the quality of management and their track record. That's really important. Um, the pricing power, is there a moat around the business, you know, in terms of margins and the level and sustainability of those margins? I also look at the end markets being sold into and the, the scope for growth for those. That That's very important. And don't forget currency. Um, obviously, you know, UK is quite a small country and a lot, lots of the companies I follow actually export overseas and have overseas operations so the impact of currency fluctuations and profitability um, is one major factor of the 16 that i look at um, because i look for companies with strong balance sheets and generally conservative conservatively geared to low net debt or net cash positions i also look for potential for earnings enhancing acquisitions that are complementary to the existing business um, but don't forget the risks, the, the, the downside risks, such as, you know, profit warning risk. You know, are, are you buying into a situation where the, the risk is, you know, of that happening is too high? You've got geopolitical risks. So there's some territories where companies are very lowly rated, but there's a reason for that. Um, you've also got economic risk, which I'll touch on later. I, I had a whole section of the feature on that. Liquidity risk, well, I cover small cap stocks. You've got to look at the liquidity of the stocks um, that you're actually getting into. So you can actually buy into them, but can you actually get out? And also the volatility of them. Um, 
I look at previous downturns, recessions, uh, periods of economic weakness to ascertain how robust the profitability of a company is and how quickly profits actually returned in the upcycle. And, you know, we've had a good example of that in the last two years with, you know, the deepest recession we've seen in living memory, followed by one of the strongest bounce backs ever. Um, and it's only when you've actually covered all these key risk factors and actually understands um, the company, the industry, the business models, that you can then actually look at the valuation of the company. And that's, that's where my stock picking um, ability actually kicks in, because I'm actually looking for companies where the upside potential from the share price market value is at least two times and sometimes three times the downside risk. So if the downside risk is 15% of the current stock price, I'm looking between 30 and 45% upside. And the reason I've been able over the years, and this is just a rough figure, but it's representative of all the bargain share portfolios I've actually covered over the last two decades, but I've got a hit rate of between 75 and 80% of the companies I cover actually produce a positive outcome for this stock price for people actually investing. So if you can actually run the winners, cut the cut the losers, you'll actually have a positive outcome on your portfolio. Um, but, it, but equally, one thing that many investors don't do, which I think is very important, and my colleague, um, columnist and former fund manager, John Rosier, does this um, to great effect, is actually then weight the risk. So having gone through all these different factors, um, and actually understood how risky the investment you're actually looking at is, then you've got to risk weight that um, company, that share in your portfolio. So should it have a 5% weighting in your portfolio? Should it only be 2%? Um, the, the point is you don't want to get hit by um, a poor performance of one stock to drag down the whole portfolio badly just because you've actually overweighted it because you misunderstood the risk. Um, so I mean that that's just just that's just the start of my stock picking process. Um, and then I, I then kick on to other factors like um, the economy and monetary policy and um, which is incredibly interesting. Well yes let's uh, let's talk about that now with um in relation to this year, 2022, um, in terms of macroeconomic and monetary policy, um, what are you expecting to see in, in 2022 and how will that affect you? Um, I, I basically laid out my, um, my view um, in the future that I believe that both sides of the Atlantic, so the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England will be tightening the monetary policy. We've had this quantitative easing um, effects, um, which has buoyed financial markets for the last two years. And what you've got to remember is that QE, the aim of it is to drive down long-term bond yields, force investors up the risk curve in search of high returns relative to bonds, boost asset prices and create a positive wealth effect. Well, that's clearly worked. You know, you've had record highs for stock markets on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and equally, you know, we had record low for bond prices last last year. Um, but the, the elephant in the room is inflation. And we're, we're seeing that coming out now that in the States um, earlier this week, um, the monetary authorities reported that inflation had hit a 40-year high of 7%. Well, we'll see that same high in the UK come April when our um, 
retail price index will be hitting 7%, and there's even a possibility of CPI hitting 7%. Well, the point is that with tight labour markets, um, low unemployment, and relatively low interest rates, the monetary authorities on both sides of the Atlantic have got to start tightening quite dramatically um, short-term interest rates. So the US Federal Reserve are predicted in the future um, uh, forward curve to actually push through four rate rises of 0.25% this year. In the UK, it's going to be at least three rises of 0.25%. Economists actually agree on that. Um, and more next year. And that's going to have an effect on um, the yield that bond investors require to actually hold bonds. And in turn, that has implications for the sectors that you should be holding. Because the sectors that did incredibly well since the start of pandemic, like technology and e-commerce, um, have actually benefited from cash money at zero, zero yields. So it's a zero interest rate policy environment. Now, as soon as you actually start increasing bond yields, um, that has a negative impact on some of those companies. Um, so, so my view this year is that the easy gains from financial markets have actually been made. Um, and you're going to have to take a thematic stock picking um, view, a strategy to actually outperform markets. So you can't actually ride off the market coattails anymore is what I'm saying. And I just feel at this point of the economic cycle, increasing exposure to cyclical value plays, so low price to book value stocks um, that offer a decent dividend yields and decent cash flow is quite a sensible strategy in view of what I believe is going to happen in the monetary um, policy environment. And which inflation camp are you in? Are you in the it's here to stay for a while or likely to fall? I know we've had IC contributors on on both sides. Um, I believe it's it's Steve Clappen who who thinks it's going to stick around a while, while Cristello thinks it's going to fall. Which uh, which camp are you in? Um, I think it's 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 going to be temporary, but it's going to be that it's going to be a higher level over the next two years than the market is actually anticipating or many investors are anticipating. That's why I'm taking a more cautious view to the sectors that I'd actually be looking at this year um, until we've actually got a real feel for how it's going to play out. And ultimately it's dependent on a number of factors such as the strength of the global economic recovery, which is still coming through in certain segments and also commodity prices, which I've done a whole sector on section on commodity prices for the future um but we, we've seen that you know for energy prices in the uk you know when the price cap is announced on the 7th of february you're going to see 50 percent plus rises in the energy cost for consumers um which is clearly inflationary but equally in 12 months from now you're not going to see another 50 percent rise um so, so you've got various factors at play so i, I i'm basically saying inflation is going to be high it's going to probably exceed most people's expectations, but I would expect it to drop back at some point next year. Uh, yes, you mentioned you, you you have a whole section on um, commodity price uh, drivers. Um, one of them you you point out is copper, and I, I wondered why you highlighted that one in particular. I've I've studied commodities in quite some depth, and I, I've produced a lot of. Um, recommendations in the sector um, or, or for that commodity. Um, the primary reason is it's a major beneficiary from greater demand for electricity, given that a higher proportion of future power generation is actually forecast to 
to come from renewables. Uh, to give you some perspective on that, wind farms and solar panels require almost five times more copper than that needed for fossil fuel power generation. Electric vehicles use four times as much copper as internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, all the infrastructure programs announced, both in the US, um, the UK, across Europe, they've got one thing, these are government infrastructure programs, they've got one thing in common, the copper intensive. Um, and it's no surprise to me that, you know, the copper price, having sold off in the autumn, is actually bouncing back and is almost trading at the all-time high that we saw in May, May last year. Um, because you've got these demand drivers um, that will literally fuel demand for copper for decades to come. Uh, to give you an insight into that, one research consultancy I spoke to um, says that green technology alone will account for 20% of estimated global consumption by 2030. Whereas if you go back a decade, it's a fraction of that. Uh, and you, you picked out some specific uh, companies uh, that might benefit from this as well. Yeah, I mean, the three that I like a lot is um, three AIM traded stocks, Metal Tiger, Jubilee Metals and Trident Royalties. Um, Metal Tiger has exposure through a holding in an Australian listed company called Sunfire, which is a $1 billion market cap company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Um, and it's got exposure through the Kalahari Copper Belts. Um, Jubilee Metals, again, that's got exposure through copper, which is ramping up production um, in Africa. And Trident Royalties has got royalty streams from copper producers. Um, so all, all three give you exposure to, you know, future upsides in the metal. But even at the current price, um, the profits these companies are going to be making in years to come are going to be huge from the copper exposure. Moving on, in terms of global markets, you've singled out Vietnam uh, in this article. Uh, you're not the only one. I seem to remember Mary McDougall highlighted uh, it as an area for interest uh, in 2022. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my view last year, I, I was hunting. Um, if, if I go one step back, um, I've always felt that investors should take a global view um, of their portfolios so if you can't get exposure through the domestic market to just look wider you know it's one one tap on a keyboard on an online dealing page to actually gain exposure to overseas um, stock stock markets um, and at the start of last year before i was compiling my uh, bargain share portfolio for 2021 um, i was looking at areas that i expected to benefit um, both from an economic bounce back, but uh, countries that actually fared quite well during the pandemic. So they'd, you know, they, they start, start the bounce back very, very quickly. Um, and Vietnam stood out. And within that, I then hunted, th this is what I do, I take a thematic approach to investing, and then I actually hunt down um, value opportunities within those themes. And the one that I came out with was Vietnam Holding, which is, a, I mean, it's a small below the radar close ends funds so investment trust uh, portfolio of 20 to 25 mid cap small cap companies and it's basically a play on three secular trends in vietnam industrialization urbanization and domestic consumerism um, to say that that has played out as you know would be the understatement that the share price is up 90 percent 
in the last 12 months. Um, it still trades at a discount to net asset value. And more importantly, given the earnings growth for the constituents portfolio companies, um, effectively, the trust is only trading on a price per earnings ratio for 2022 of about 12, which I can see actually upside to that valuation, which is why I'm still positive on it. Um, I also included um, the second oldest investment trust, Close End Funds in Canada, it's Canadian General Investments. It's had the same portfolio manager for over 50 years. And the reason I actually chose that was that it had an overweight position on US tech stocks. Um, You've been taking profits on some of them, um, but it also had exposure to, you know, older, um, more traditional uh, North American um, holdings that benefit from the US economic recovery. And again, that's panned out. It's, you know, to date, the total return from that holdings around about 25%. But the, the point is with both of those, it would be impossible for me to replicate their portfolios um, or for any investment, uh, to be honest, in you know, a cost-efficient manner. Um, so that the, the sensible way was to actually buy into them, to actually play those themes. Um, and that's exactly what I'm doing at the moment. I'm looking at my 2022 bargain share portfolio, which will be published on the 11th of February. And I'm looking at gaining exposure to other international areas um, through, through trusts in that way that I, I've got a very strong view on. Great. Um, so I'm keen not to uh, keep you for too long and as well to leave some of this uh, article uh, uh, sort of secret so people can go and uh, go, go, on, go on and read it as well. Is there anything else from from this article that you'd like to just touch on now before we finish? Well, I actually, perhaps perhaps one final point is this, which many investors don't look at, is how to capitalized and capital returns, be it share buybacks, tender offers and special dividends. And in the feature I've actually given or highlighted one example, it was a aim traded investment company called Gresham House Strategic. It's now called Rockwood uh, Realization. And it had a tender offer and cash returned last year. I've been following this stock since 2016 when I included the shares in my bargain portfolio that year. It's, it's more than doubled, more than 100% total return since then. But the point is that anyone that actually saw the announcement last autumn, um, in terms of this, you know, cash return and tender offer, um, would have made about a 12% total return on their capital, while at the same time, um, having 44% of their capital returned in cash to them by actually playing it. Um, and that, that's that's one of the things I actually look out for is tender offers and capital returns because not many not many private investors actually focus on those and as a result these valuation anomalies can actually arise and um, to make a twelve percent return on your capital within space of about five six weeks basically you've made an annual return in a tenth of the year. Um, anyway, in the feature, I actually highlight how it worked and things to actually look out for. So it's it's well worth a read. It is well worth a read, and uh, it can be find found on our websites or in the uh, in the physical magazine. That's Secrets of Successful Investing. Simon, thank you so much for your time. No, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. 
Next up, welcome to the podcast, Alex Newman, uh, who is covering properties this week, and he's had a busy one. Uh, there's been a lot to talk about. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hi. Good, thanks, John. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, let's start with the biggest story of the week, um, which you've been all over. Housing Secretary Michael Gove um, has laid the cost of the cladding crisis, the plumbable cladding, uh, on the doorstep of house builders uh, as opposed to leaseholders in what he's called a new deal. Alex, what what is in the new deal and what's the reaction been? Yeah, so um, so Michael Gove, it was kind of uh, leaked over the weekend, uh, last weekend, various reports putting out that he was going to tap the uh, developers for uh, an extra four billion to help resolve the the cladding crisis. I mean, you can sort of back, backtrack slightly, and on what this all stemmed from is the, as everyone know, the 2017 Grenfell uh, Tower fire, which in in the wake of that revealed just the the, the chronic um, uh, sort of poverty of the of building standards over the the last few decades. And um, this is sort of the latest iteration of a, a sort of social political settlement with the developers who have, you know, on their on their watch, a lot of these buildings have been built. So the, the, the news uh, on, on Monday, uh, Michael Gove, the housing secretary, as you, as you said, um, said he is, is sort of using various measures to, to, to pressure the, the, um, the property developers into coughing up four billion pounds and this is specifically going to go towards buildings between 11 meters and 18 meters the government's previously said that above that limit they're gonna they're gonna um kick in quite a lot of the um the money there are still you know huge questions resolved for tenants of uh, of of uh, properties below that level and um and all the other remedial work that's been identified since grenfell and and and, and how that's going to be fixed so Four billion pounds is the number that's been bandied around this week. You know, some campaigners are saying it's it's, it's closer to fifteen billion, the, the the amount that needs to be stumped up. Where that comes for, and and on whose shoulders that that falls, is kind of the the big question for for investors, and and that's what we've seen play out this week. But I mean, but before this before this announcement, property property developers they weren't doing nothing. I mean, some of them had already started contributing um, towards removing unsafe cladding. Absolutely, yeah. So, so um, the I mean, obviously, seeing the way the wind's been blowing, and you know, sitting on enormous, you know, a decade of enormous profits, basically the the largest house builders, sort of among them, uh, Persimmon, Taylor Wimpy, um, Barrett Developments. They've they, I suppose, you could say proactively, or whether it's after the fact, um, set aside provisions for various remedial work. So, some of this is essentially improving the clad, the cladding quality which um which has been sort of the most visible aspect of this others have identified other um refits and improvements that that need to be made um uh in 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 barrett's case there they have bought back some of the some of the properties which are were found to be faulty so there's there's been a, a range of redress so far and it's kind of it, it's sort of totting up and it's it, I, th- I think we're getting towards the the billion pounds market mark that they've either identified so far or uh, or agreed to pay. What I suppose the question is what what's what's happening next, and the reason why a lot of the um, the house builder shares fell, um, you know, sort of three four percent on Monday is is kind of a, a signal that the government actually wants a bigger take. In October, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced a a a, a, 
a, a tax on on the profit, additional tax on the profits of um, of, of developers with with profits of at least twenty five million uh, uh, pounds. Uh, so that's going to add a sort of that's going to add a a four percent four percentage charge um, uh, to a four percentage point charge to the taxes of uh, those developers. And so the balance now is whether whether they you know the 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 Gove is going to go after um, uh, developers through a kind of one-off windfall, or an, or hiking that tax that's uh, that's sort of initially been agreed. Are there any are there any silver linings from this from a from a house builder's point of view? I mean, it, it's it's a fairly large figure, but it is a figure, I suppose, and it's it's a figure that they haven't had before now. Yeah, um, it, yeah. I, I mean, I I think it. That both parties are, are trying to arrive at a consensus in that sense that is a positive i suppose if you're an investor in this sector um last year wrote a piece just comparing the cladding scandal to the, the ppi mis-selling scandal which um uh i suppose the the issue there for investors in in bank shares that was sort of very very long running financial redress which ran into the tens and tens of billions of pounds um was that there was never really a, an end in sight during during the the payments which were which were being made it seems now that the government is want, wants to round on this 4 billion number and and some of the uh, letters that were leaked between the treasury and the department for leveling, leveling up over the weekend there was even talk about if if this 4 billion pounds uh, figure cannot be reached in other words if you can't get everything you're looking for fairly from the developers which uh, may have contributed to this issue then some of it is going to have to come out of the leveling up budget now I, th I think that's probably unlikely because it would be a bit of a political mess if taxpayers are seen seem to be adding more to to fix this crisis and it would also suggest that despite these harsh words this this week um that you know gove et al can't follow up their you know the pressure they're putting on the developers but there is a number in sight and in some cases um you know Amnesty Jeffries pointed out Persimmon uh Taylor Wimpy especially they they seem to have modeled for quite a lot of these these costs they're going to have to add in extra through taxation over the, the next five years um but it's it's unlikely I think that they're going to be the runaway costs which might have been feared not so long ago um and obviously, it's in the interest of both parties to reach a number rather than letting this play out in the courts. And obviously, you mentioned that uh, the news initially um, hit a few of the, the big players, Persimmon, Barrett, Taylor Wimpy, Berkeley, etc. Um, how, in the, in the short and medium term, how um, what, what's the outlook for these companies? Simon Thompson pointed out to me that in the past 20 years, the largest first quarter decline uh, in the house building sector has been 6.5%, which is where it is at the moment. And 85% of the time within that quarter, it's it's rallied. Um, what's your outlook? Yeah, I, was, I mean, yeah, I was unaware of that, that uh, stat in terms of the, the, the sort of mean reversion. I, I mean, the, the, um, the thing you have to say about the house builders is that they are astonishingly cheap. Um, uh, both in relative terms to the rest of the market and in historic terms, so they just continue to to throw off an enormous amount of cash. Obviously, they benefit from this supply demand imbalance that we have in the UK when it comes to housing. 
Um, they've been able to swallow the cost inflation that they've seen over the, you know, the, the last two years, um, uh, mainly by passing, well, either passing it on or just um, rising with the, the the tide which has lifted all residential property boats over the last, which has been house prices. Um, so they have these huge structural moats and positions, which, are, you know, I don't think are going away anytime soon um they are you know they're, they're kind of they're not quite back to the peak of profitability they were at in sort of 2018 when helped to buy really turbocharged their their profits but um uh i mean they look cheap on almost any standard i, I think there are lots of risks facing the house builders but i find it i i'm sort of increasingly of the view that they are you know they can handle the pressures that are coming their way be it interest rates these kind of levies coming from government, um, they're just so cash generative, the balance sheets are so cashed up um, that, you know, the sort of 10, 11 times forward earnings multiples they're sitting on, Persimmon, I think, paying like a 9% dividend now. You don't really find that elsewhere among blue chip companies. Um, and I, I can't see them losing that momentum um, uh, anytime soon. So they're probably near enough, I'd say, the bottom they're going to be um, price-wise. And let's just quickly talk about some of the other uh, pieces you've written this week. Um, firstly, uh, headline: London house price growth prospects look shaky. This uh, this is something that hasn't been the case for you know twenty years. Uh, I think you write that between two thousand and two and twenty twenty there was four point eight percent growth a year, uh, and in twenty twenty one that that did drop to two point one percent. So. Um, Yes, yeah, so yeah. I should just I should correct you there. So four point eight nationally in London, it's been it's been five point eight. So, um, ah. but the, but the, the you know the the longer running trend is yeah, as you say, it's been we've had it we've had at least three enormous yeah. boom periods since the eighties. Um, so what's so what's the worry now? Uh, is is it a COVID fueled uh, fueled issue? Uh, in part, yeah, we can't. I don't think we can separate COVID from anything in sort of financial markets or the world of the, you know, still unfortunately. Um, but um, you know, just to contradict everything I've just said about the enormity of house price uh, inflation you've seen nationally, the, the issue, you know, there's a number of issues in London, uh, which uh, for you know those betting on house price growth indefinitely, and I think it's you know it's been said many times before, and London, the London market is. You know, defied it many, many times. But I see there there are certain market events where I think there's almost a kind of buffer coming up for house prices. So one is one is the kind of supply demand question. I mean, London. It's interesting to see going through the the, the stats over the last twenty years. Its population has grown by twenty five percent. So in an era of you know rock bottom in interest rates. Um, you know that that really puts a, a floor under house price growth it, it doesn't look like any that, that you know london that that sort of population increase is likely to um you know slow down massively but there is this dynamic of lots of long-term londoners or or younger londoners who are you know just saying that it, the capital is either unaffordable or who have looked at their lives post pandemic and decided actually you know from a quality of life perspective there are you know there are places they can live elsewhere and still have you know still um do their jobs and and be happier so i think there is a there is a kind of interesting dynamic on the the you know the sort of push pull and and just how 
much appetite there is for um, London housing stock versus you know recent years. And the other one, sort of related to that on affordability, is that we're sort of really against the buffers of what the average or what the median household can afford here. So um, for the last few years, it's been over twelve times. Twelve times the ratio has been twelve times um, uh, sort of the average house to to median earnings. And that compares to you know in 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 the north it's uh it's sort of less than less than six so the you know the 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 chance for the average uh you know young family to get on the housing ladder is you know in the last ten years has has become markedly slimmer the fact you know the the the, the one element that I think people may be sort of underweighting is that we haven't really had much interest rate growth in that in that 10 years and we've not really tested what happens to mortgage affordability uh, which is a decent proxy for um for house buying appetite um in london so um i i can't really see if we're getting up to one percent interest rates by the end of the year as some people are forecasting um how uh how we can maintain these you know these this this such wide gaps between incomes and house prices i think there are going to be some real pinch points ahead for london house prices and sorry just at the risk of uh, of running out of time you've written one more piece uh this week about a new peer-to-peer lending uh, property lender yeah uh, called estate guru so yeah i mean new they're new in the sense that they're they're launching in the uk uh, um my understanding is that investors have uk investors have been able to participate in the platform until now but because they haven't had an you know, an FCA license, they've been unable to market their uh, financial products. And also because, it's, you know, the, the way a peer-to-peer lender works, you have borrowers going on the site, launching projects. Uh, they're normally sort of uh, short-term property projects and then lend, lenders slash investors offering to provide the debt to, to fund those. And so on the, on the borrower side, UK borrowers haven't been able to list their projects um on estate gear but yeah so it's been going since 2014 it's an estonian uh company they they're they're quite widespread across europe now and as of this week they've they've done about half a billion euros of um lending i mean their track record and the figures are uh are very strong so they've had very very um low losses to date um but yeah i i i just it it just caught my eye uh this this story because they uh, you know, I mean, 11% yields inevitably going to attract a, a sort of property and yield obsessed nation like the UK. And um, uh, I, I imagine there'll be quite a lot of interest once, you know, it gets a bit more recognition um, over here. But, you know, I suppose the devil is in the detail. And the question that's faced lots of peer-to-peer lenders before is balancing this credit risk with, um, uh, you know, with the ob- the the appetite of investors particularly when those sort of rates are teased before them um so we've you know been a number of peer-to-peer lenders in in the in the past decade who have not been able to live up to the the initially heady promises that they've um um, they've made so it'll be interesting to to see if they can navigate these larger markets they are now entering uh successfully whilst juggling these you know both sides of the the lending um yeah Great. Yeah. Too good to be true, I guess, uh, is remains to be seen. Um, thank you so much, Alex, for joining me. Um, those articles can be found uh, on the IC websites and uh, and in the magazine. Alex, thank you for your time and we'll catch you another one.
See you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. That was a little bit different to our normal interview format, but we hoped you enjoyed listening to some of our own senior writers. We're in the process of planning a new podcast series where we do hear from IC writers uh, about the week's news. We'd love your feedback on this idea or any of our other podcasting. If you have any thoughts, please drop me an email at john.rogers at ft.com. That's J-O-H-N dot R-O-G-E-R-S at ft.com.